Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 424, recorded on Sunday, October 29th, 2023. They let me back in here, so I'm Moss. Chilling like a villain, I'm Joe. Making doing nothing into an art form, I'm Bill. First up in the news, Mint Monthly News, Ubuntu 23.10 re-released, GNOME gets new CEO, new Raspberry Pi imager released, Plasma 6 release dates released, Matrix releases 100, Matrix reaches 115 million users, Bodhi Linux 7.0 app pack released. In security and privacy, Black Cat ransomware attacks Linux and VMs, 1Password breach, no harm, no foul, and new vulnerabilities found in patch in XWayland and XORG. Then in our wanderings, Bill shuffles cards, Joe tests more things, and Moss keeps busy. In our innards section, we discuss containerized package systems. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. Mint Monthly News, October 2023, from the Linux Mint blog via Londoner. Clem starts off by telling us why the Debian unstable repo is called SID, and why the Mint unstable repo is called Romeo, because each release of Mint has her Romeo, which can be which can potentially break her heart. Going forward, Romeo will be used to push new features and the changes being worked on in preparation for the new, next release. This will allow alpha testers to run unstable versions of Cinnamon, XApp, Mint tools, etc. without having to compile anything. It will also replace the unstable PPA. New features were added to Hypnotics, the TV viewer application, in preparation for the Linux Mint 21.3 release this Christmas. Channels will be able to be saved as favorites. To ensure YouTube channels continue to work when the YTDLP package is outdated, the ability for Hypnotics to download and update its own local version of YTDLP has been added. Work has started on Wayland. As mentioned earlier this year, this was identified as one of the major challenges the project had to tackle in the mid to long term. Priority had been given to ISO tools and secure boot over new features for 21.3 already, and it was felt it was time to invest some resources into Wayland as well. A screenshot of Cinnamon running in Wayland is shown in the blog post. Cinnamon 6.0, planned for Mint 21.3 this year, will feature experimental Wayland support. You will be able to select between Cinnamon, the default session running on XORG, and Cinnamon on Wayland from the login screen. Many features are still missing, so Wayland is not expected to become the default instead of X11 until Mint 23 in mid-2026. That leaves two years to identify and fix all the issues. Next up, Ubuntu 2310 desktop ISOs re-released following Translation Snafu. This is from Pharonix. Hours after Ubuntu 2310 was released last Thursday, it was discovered Ubuntu 2310 ISOs contained malicious user translations for those using the Ukrainian translations within the Ubuntu Linux desktop installer. Canonical suspended the desktop ISOs until the translations could be fixed and ISOs respun. That's now happened and this afternoon Ubuntu 23.10 images are back online. 
the affected Ubuntu 23.10 desktop ISOs from last week's translation incident have now been corrected and are back online. Those wanting to download the <coughs> Ubuntu 23.10 desktop ISO can do so via Ubuntu.com. Ubuntu 23.10 is a great upgrade with Linux 6.5 and Mesa 23.2, GCC 13.2 powering the system. GNOME 45 being the basis of the Ubuntu desktop, a wealth of other package updates. ZFS root file system support added to the new desktop installer and many other package updates. It's a great step before Ubuntu 2404 LTS due out in the spring. Now, I understand, you know, people were trying to support, show their support for, for Ukraine or whatever. But, yeah, I hope they found the person and completely blocked their access from being able to do this type of thing again. Yeah, this article stated that the hate speech was only found in the Ukrainian version, but I also read elsewhere that it was also found in the Russian version. Hmm. That's what I thought I remembered reading from when the news first came out on why they were... Not posting 2310. Uh, on the last episode of Late Night Linux, they were talking about this, and um, Will uh, mentioned that he thought, and it was just a theory, he pointed out that um, part of the problem is just the low number of people that are working on translations now. And, and comparatively speaking, Ukraine, although we hear a lot about Ukraine these days, it is a relatively niche language in the Ubuntu space, I guess. And which makes, you know, when there's less people looking at it, less people, less eyeballs looking over. Less scrutiny. Yeah, less scrutiny. The, things like this can get passed because he seemed to indicate that it, it would happen all the time, but it would always get caught. And uh, it's presumable that a lot of people in Ukraine, which would normally be having something to do with this, probably busy doing other things too. So, I mean, it's unfortunate things like this happen, but you got to know that stuff like this happens all the time. It just gets caught, you know, before we hear about it. So, I don't know. It's a good thing that it was caught. Um, and it, it's also a good thing that it was not the LTS and that it was something that happened after the release of it and uh, a far bigger user base downloaded it. All right. Gnome Foundation welcomes Holly Million as executive director, and this is from the Gnome Foundation blog. Um, Gnome Foundation welcomed Holly Million as the new executive director. Holly is a multi-talented individual with a diverse background in mon nonprofit leadership, filmmaking, teaching, public speaking, and writing. Holly brings three decades of invaluable experience in nonprofit management, having served as a consultant, director of development, executive director, and board member for numerous organizations. Notably, she found the nonprofit organization Artists United, dedicated to empowering individuals, artists, and fostering collaboration across artistic disciplines for the collective good. Additionally, Holly served as the director, uh, executive director of the BioBricks Foundation, an international open source biotechnology nonprofit. Holly holds a Master's of Arts in Education from Stanford University and a Bachelor of Arts in English from Harvard University. Her academic background combined with her extensive professional journey 
equips her with a unique perspective that will undoubtedly contribute to the growth and success of the Gnome Foundation. Um, and that's all the good news about that. Uh, the one controversial issue is that she was a part of uh, uh, some kind of, she, I don't want to call it a cult, but she's a member of people well, that Well, among other things, to, she's listed as a shaman on her yeah. uh, should we care about that? I mean, resume. Should, should that be a topic of of <laughs> hey, conversation? They, they didn't hire Marianne Williamson. We should be able to deal with this level of woo. Okay, for those, let's pretend that nobody knows what you're talking about, and who is that person then? When you don't know Marianne Williamson, I might. Nope. I just running for president on the Democratic ticket right now. Oh. Well, that's me back in my hole. Is anybody paying attention to the Democratic ticket right now? <laughs> She ran the last two elections as well, but she didn't get much traction. Right? I'll worry about that in 2024. Take it, Joe. Okay, Raspberry Pi Imager gets new tabbed OS customization and UI, Raspberry Pi 5 support. Uh, this is from 95 Linux. Raspberry Pi Imager 1.8.1 has been uh, released today as the latest stable version of this official image flashing utility for Raspberry Pi single board computers that adds new features and improvements, support for the latest Raspberry Pi 5 model, and more. The biggest change in the Raspberry Pi Imager 1.8.1 release is the rename of the Advanced Options feature accessed using the Control-Shift-X keyboard shortcut to OS customization, which is now available as a tabbed UI in the application rather than listing all the options in a single window where you had to scroll the view. Raspberry Pi Imager 1.8.1 also introduces a new home screen with a new mechanism for selecting the Raspberry Pi device, along with support for Raspberry Pi 5. This is an extra step when flashing a new OS image on an SD card. But it's very useful for writing the right operating system for your Raspberry Pi device. Another exciting change in Raspberry Pi Imager 1.81 is the ability to drag and drop image files into the application for flashing. Moreover, the new version adds support for parsing the uncompressed size of local.xz files to provide you with better progress reports when flashing an image. You can download Raspberry Pi Imager 1.8.1 right now from the official website or from the project's GitHub page. And I did pre-read this article before the show and kind of trim some parts out that I found less interesting. So definitely go check out the link in the show notes if you want more information. Okay, 9 to 5 liniment. I'd buy that. Liniment, yeah. That, that's, <laughs> that. I wasn't sure if I said liniment or ligament. You said liniment. <laughs> well, okay. This Any, is a, anything that works eight hours is fine by me. <laughs> this is a cool right? project. It really is because whenever, yeah, it just takes all of the searching and downloading out of the whole process. You just run this little thing, and it sets everything up for you, and you're ready to run. Right, and it really works for all your your common like uh, Raspberry Pi install stuff. And I really, yeah. I really love using it for that. I mean, I used it um, when I set up uh, Octopi on my Pi 4 right. and just a couple of clicks and it did all the work for me. Uh, I also like the fact that if I go out and find, um, you know, a, a little bit more niche Raspberry Pi image or make my own image, I can just drag and drop it on there and, and use it. Yeah. The only, yeah, it sounds cool. The only thing it miss it's missing. And as far as I know, is still missing is the ability to just write from 
first boot, use a static IP address because, and it seems like an obvious thing to add in because if you run, uh, okay, so Armbian's got a similar tool called Armbian Config, and it does have that functionality and quite a bit more actually. And it makes sense to add that because most people are setting these things up as some kind of server. So, you know, I'd like to see that. I mean, it's not a big deal to get in there and change right. it. But so, then... yeah, now, now the process is what, write the image and then mount the image and then uh, find the file and update the file with the uh, um, the ID of the Wi-Fi and the password. Yeah, you got to change a, uh, I can't remember if, if they're still using file. Yeah, it's a resolve.com file or something like that. There, there's plenty of instructions out there and it comes easy. It's it's not a big deal. And if you're running the script to install Pi-hole, part of the install script is to set up a IP address. So I mean, it's kind of trivial, but you know, it seems like one of those things that should be obvious. But nonetheless, it's a cool project and and I gl- I'm glad it exists. Okay, KDE Plasma 6.0 release date revealed from OMG Ubuntu. KDE Plasma 6.0, the next major release of the phenomenally popular open-source desktop environment, is under rapid development. An official release schedule has been unveiled, and it pins down the precise release date for KDE Plasma 6, plus many of the related technology stacks paired with it. In fact, there are so many package releases happening at the same time that devs are dubbing this the Mega Release, so please apply a suitably epic vocal sound effect when reading that name aloud in your head. Mega Release. Yeah, okay. Key dates in the KDE Plasma 6 release schedule. The 8th of November is goes Alpha. 29th of November, Beta 1. 20th of December, Beta 2. 10th of January, 2024, Release Candidate 1. 31st of January, RC 2. By the way, all these dates include KDE Gear and KDE Framework snapshots alongside KDE Plasma. Things get officially official. During the private tarball release taking place on 21 February 2024, which is followed by a week later by the main event, the real deal, the epic emergence, the first stable release, 28 February 2024, KDE Plasma 6.0 release. Of course, it should be stressed that last-minute bugs, unexpected issues, or imploding infrastructure, etc. could intervene at any juncture and push these dates out, so don't take them as sacrosanct deadlines. I have not seen any betas I, I mean i could but i just haven't had the time to look at it to see from what i understand that's not going to be a huge uh user interface change uh it's it's a lot of under the hood type stuff it's going to be updated to the new 6.0 but i think that's okay because it took kde quite some time to get to to get where they're at in terms of reliability and and uh functionality and all that and things actually working and so I'll be eager to see how this goes. I'll have it on my I'll have it on my laptop upstairs to play around with. So yeah, watch this space. Awesome. All right. <clears throat> the Raspberry Pi 5 is available now. There goes one of my predictions. Three weeks ago, the latest generation of the Raspberry Pi 5 was unveiled. <clears throat> Since then, they've shared insights into the overall architecture of the platform. The RP1IO controller, the software stack, the image signal processor, and some of the official accessories, including the case and the forthcoming updated PoE hat. Behind the scenes, they've been working hard with their friends 
at the Sony UK Technology Center in Wales, where your pie is baked, to ramp up the manufacturing and production test process. Things have gone a little faster than expected, and they're happy to announce that the first mass production units will ship to customers this week, starting with subscribers to the Magpie and Hackerspace magazines who have taken advantage of the priority boarding promotion. All existing priority boarding orders have shipped, and every approved reseller in a country in a country where our compliance paperwork has been signed off by the authorities will have received initial stock of both 4GB and 8GB variants. So those of you who have pre-ordered will start to see parcels arriving in your mailboxes. They are continuing to increase our production rate with the aim of fulfilling all back orders and getting Raspberry Pi in stock at all our approved resellers by the end of the year. By then, you should be able to just buy one straight off the shelf. That's sort of exciting if it weren't for the price increase. Yeah, there is a price increase. There's also a lot of functionality increase, which is exciting. <laughs> Proper machine. But I no. think they're kind of well. Yeah, that that's kind of the problem too, though, because they're moving away from you know what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be making a single board computer that is small, easy to use, and, and easily accessible to students and makers for making and learning. So, do you think this device will not have the will not push the kind of numbers that the previous devices did just because of the price point sales wise yeah yeah probably that's i mean it's what triple the price yeah and by the time the original one was yeah if it's double the function then maybe they they have made improvements in the chip it's a lot of it is like 5x the functionality or the speed anyway so there is a lot of improvements in speed and there is some improvements in, in functionality. I mean, you are getting a, um, not an M.2, but, uh, well, you can add an M.2 now, but, um, SATA, you got you're SATA. getting extra IO, you're getting faster, uh, Wi-Fi, uh, separate processing for your Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. Right. Um, <clears throat> Um, the USBs actually have, has their own, um, distinct lines. Yeah. So they're not all, the internet is not dependent on the exact same bandwidth as, as your USB, which was a big stopping point earlier on. But, um, yeah, it is, it is a vast, vast improvement, but it's definitely moving more towards the hobbyists and away from, um, you know, students and, and learners. I think you're right. Well, they, they have tried selling these things as replacements for your desktop, and they just haven't been. They've been close, but they haven't been. Yeah, so, the 4 definitely was not. From what I understand, the 5 is almost there. You start to get up, when you get into that price point, though, you start to get up into the O-Droid territory and things like that, where you can actually, you could actually have a proper x86 machine for roughly the same price that will run... Uh, more software and you have access to things like Netflix and stuff like that, which requires a little bit of hackiness to do on a Raspberry Pi. And then it, it only works so, so, and it only works half the time. So, you know, it, it's a, it's a strain. I understand, you know, you've got this presumption built in that you just have to keep iterating on this thing, uh, in order for your, for the product to be, a success or that's the belief i suppose but i i will it will be interesting to see how this progresses as time goes on well 
I, I know they also increased the price on the zeros, the zero twos, but um, as long as they're still cranking those out in, in the, the, the 15 to $20 price range, then I guess you are still getting that student hackable device. And then you kind of consider the main line to be more, you know, hobbyists. Yeah. I guess it kind of works out. Yeah. And, and tune in to Explaining Computers with Christopher Barnett for more information. Fantastic guy. <laughs> Take it, Bill. All right. Decentralized Matrix Messaging Network says it now has 115 million users. Me being one of them. Um, from bleeping. Me computer. being one of them. Yeah. I only use it for a couple of things, but that could change in the future. This is from Bleeping Computer. Um, the team behind the Matrix Open Standard and Real-Time Communication Protocol has announced the release of its second major version, bringing end-to-end -end encryption to Group VOIP, that's Voice Over Internet Protocol, uh, faster loading times, and more. Additionally, the Synapse Open Source Matrix home servers opt-in usage reported, reporting indicates that Unique matrix IDs on the public network have surpassed 115 million, indicating massive growth of the protocol. This growth, this growth is nearly doubled from its 60 million users in July 2022, which by itself marked a 79% increase from the summer of 2021. The matrix ecosystem is thriving, stated the foundation's technical co-founder, Matthew Hodgson in a press release sent to Bleeping Computer. More and more Matrix-based products and services are coming to the market in response to rapid growth at every level, from governments and major public sector organizations to enterprises, businesses, and everyday people. You can read about Matrix 2.0's new features in the article linked in the show notes, which I have not put the show notes on the website yet. Uh... But I will have that done by the time most people re uh, listen to this. Well, I don't use Matrix. I tried using it early on, and it seemed to uh, everyone was bridging it from here, there, and everywhere that I already had uh, feeds from, and it just seemed redundant to me. I'm still not a hundred. I I I installed Matrix just to talk to one person who seems to only have a presence on. Uh, Matrix and Mastodon, things like that, for the obvious open source reasons. You know, I haven't quite figured it all out. It's I was expecting it to be sort of a federated uh, alternative to something like Discord, and it kind of is, but it's not. I mean, Discord does so many things that I don't see Matrix doing, but again, I've only been using it a short time. It's more of a mixture of like Telegram and, and Discord because it does have that end-to-end -end encryption. So I, I don't know. And I use it, I only use it for um, the Linux Logcast. Yeah, I used it to talk to the the main developer of the Tenacity project. Um, and that's really it. But it's they use it quite a bit in that project, the developers do, and the people that are contributing to that to that project. Anyway, 
Okay, last but not least, Bodhi 7.0 64-bit app pack released from Bodhi Forums. The Bodhi team is pleased to announce our much-requested release of the app pack version of Bodhi Linux 7.0, derived from Ubuntu 22.04 LTS Jammy Jellyfish Base. This release is 64-bit only. The latest ISOs can be downloaded from SourceForge. There's a link. And a list of the pre-installed applications can be found at the Bodhi Wiki, also a link. And that's it for the news. Let's move on to security and privacy. You, know, you in security and privacy. With... Yep. Black Cat Ransomware uses new Munchkin Linux VM in stealthy attacks from Bleeping Computer. The Black Cat slash ALPHV ransomware operation has begun to use a new tool named Munchkin that utilizes virtual machines to deploy encryptors on network devices stealthily. Munchkin enables Black Cat to run on remote systems or encrypt remote server message block, SMB, or common internet file, CIFS, network shares. The introduction of Munchkin to Black Cat's already extensive and advanced arsenal makes the RAAS more attractive to cybercriminals seeking to become ransomware affiliates. Palo Alto Networks Unit 42 has discovered that Black Cat's new Munchkin tool is a customized Alpine OS Linux distribution that comes as an ISO file. After compromising a device, the threat actors install VirtualBox and create a new virtual machine using the Munchkin ISO. This Munchkin virtual machine includes a suite of scripts and utilities that allow the threat actors to dump passwords, spread laterally on the network, build Black Cat Sphinx encryptor payload, and ex execute programs on network computers. Upon boot, it changes the root password to one known only by the attackers and leverages the Tmux utility to execute a Rust-based malware binary named Controller that begins to load scripts used in the attack. Black Cat emerged in late 2021 as a sophisticated Rust-based ransomware operation as a successor to Black Matter and DarkSide. The RAAS has followed a successful trajectory thus far, regularly introducing advanced features like highly con configurable intermittent encryption, data leak API, M-Packet and Remcon embedding, encryptors with custom... <clears throat> encryptors with support for custom credentials, signed kernel drivers, and upgrades on the data exfiltration tool. Notable Black Cat victims in 2023 include the Florida Circuit Court, MGM Resorts, Motel One, Seiko, Estee Lauder, HWL Ebsworth, Western Digital, and Constellation Software. More information and harmful scripts can be found at the link in the show notes. Update your software, folks. Okta support system incident and 1Password from 1Password blog. Uh, suspicious activity was detected by 1Password on their Okta instance related to their support system incident. After a thorough investigation, they concluded that no 1Password user data was accessed. On September 29th, we detected suspicious activity on the Okta instance that is used to manage employee-facing apps. They immediately terminated the activity investigated and found no compromise of user data or other sensitive systems, either employee-facing or user-facing. Since then, they've been working with Okta to determine the initial vector of the compromise. As of late Friday, October 20th, this was confirmed as a result of Okta's support system breach. 
Okay, XWayland and XORG server see new releases due to three more security vulnerabilities. This is from Pharonix by Michael Larabelle. The XORG server and XWayland saw new point releases today as a result of three more security vulnerabilities being disclosed. October began with new XORG Security vulnerabilities, two of which dated back to the year 1988. Now, as we approach the end of October, three more vulnerabilities have been made public. Okay, there's a bunch of numbers there. Is an out-of-bounds write within the XI change device property, RR change output property, where memcopy can end up writing into memory outside of the heap allocated array. I'm going to read it this time. CVE 2023-5380 is for a use after free within destroy window. The later vulnerability only affects multi-monitor Zaphod mode setups. The third is CVE 2023-5574 and is another use after free bug. This time within damage destroy and also affecting multi-head Zaphod mode setups. Xorg Server 21.1.9 and Wayland 23.2.2 were released today with the Xorg patches to address these out-of-bounds and use-after-free errors. These three CVEs come as a result of the Trend Micro Zero Day initiative where they have also uncovered many other Xorg vulnerabilities over the years. More details on today's updates via Xorg Security Advisory link in the show notes. And for our UK friends, yes, we know that's pronounced Zaphod. Zaphod Beeblebrox. It's Zaphod. You haven't. Zaphod Beeblebrox. You can say it because you read it, but you haven't watched it, so you don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's it for security. Let's move on to biweekly wanderings. Bi-weekly wanderings. Take it away, Joe. Alrighty then. I put the new 4020 fan on the front of the hot end on my 3D printer. Uh, the old one was starting to make a grinding sound every now and again. Um, uh, I have to put the... I have put the barrel connector on there for quicker replacements in the future. And I like how it has turned out. Um, I do need to do some more cable management just to make things neater. But it is working well and I really can't complain. Um, I have not replaced the other fan yet since it's still a pretty new 4010 and it's working well enough. And I think that with the larger 4020, I would have to redo my settings again and reduce the speed even more. I also noticed that the uh, passive sound of the new fan is a lot more than the old one. Um, now we get to see how long the thing lasts. Hopefully the next time I can get like a Noxua or another silent fan model and see how well that works. Now I am having to turn off the entire system uh, a lot more often, which also re does require powering down the Pi because the Pi will have enough power provided that the fan will keep running. And so if I want it quiet in my garage, I got to turn it all off. Now, I know I was talking last time about uh, modding um, an Audio-Technica ATH-M50, and I've started doing that. I, I put on the modded ear cups, which make them a lot more comfortable to wear, and increases the sound stage. I also added a couple of portholes um, to the closed back to allow for more membrane movement. Um, I'm still working on adding Bluetooth to it. 
I think I want to do it in a non-invasive way unless um, I want to work with another one as well. And I do have another one uh, close by, but it's the white instead of the black. Now, I also had to reprint my foot pedal that I use with my USB switcher for when I'm working. Uh, I thought about redesigning it again and seeing if I could bulk up the portion that broke. But um, I think that I'll try another method that I have seen and see if it strengthens the plastic noticeably. I'm simply going to coat the problem area of the part in super glue and see if it lasts longer. I mean, I can always, you know, redo the design later. Um, adding the glue did make it feel sturdier, but now let's see if it lasts more than the six months that the other one did. Also, when I was printing it, um, well, when I was removing the support structure, I did have a part break, and so that ended up uh, remelted and super glued as well. Now, uh, I was uh, testing some things out, and I Chrome Remote Desktop started randomly working again. I was testing out alternatives to it, and I looked and could see that one of my computers was still reachable. Some changes have been made in that I could no longer choose a screen size that would match my phone and look good. Um, this is not as much of a problem when I'm hooked up to a large screen and using DeX, but it is very noticeable on my phone screen alone. So I may work on just adding some different uh, screen resolutions and, and see how that works there. Um, but by alternatives, I was thinking about the method that I used to have a second screen for my little mini laptop, the one GX, um, that is over a network and I can set the screen size to whatever I choose. The only thing that I would have to do after I add the virtual screen is shut down the main screen. I'm not sure how well this will work from a remote location as I've only used this over the local network, but um, with like WireGuard or VPN, I'd look like I was on the, the local network, but I still have my concerns about latency. Um, I also wanted to test out using a tablet to mirror the screen of my phone. I don't think that it would be all that useful, but I do think that it could be fun just to have it on a larger screen. Uh, now I, for some reason, I, I could not find any application that did it well and allowed me to control the phone from the tablet. There should be something out there to do this easily, but I have not found it yet. Now, I started using DroidCam again because I'm lazy and didn't want to keep moving my camera back and forth. I mentioned it because I had some trouble setting it up at first. Now, you still need to load the drivers for the, the V4L2 loopback, but if you try to connect it from the computer to the phone, then it's gonna throw an error and it won't connect. Uh, you instead need to set it to receive and then go to the phone and tell it to connect to the computer and then that works just fine. And I've been using that in my garage um, for my other podcasts that require me to be on camera. And that's mostly what I've been up to other than 3D printing a couple of uh, half masks for Halloween to see how they came out. And they did, they, they looked pretty well, but I'm not sure about wearing them out on Halloween. Moss, what have you been up to? Well, I've been keeping busy with school and trying to keep my life together. I almost bought a piece of property, but fell $1,100 short. It may still be available later, but for now we're concentrating on my wife's upcoming knee surgery, uh, December 6th, I believe, which could also cost us thousands of dollars, even with her insurance. She has really bad insurance. Nothing new broke. Distro Hopper's Digest got off without a hitch. It was a great episode. And I am finally caught up and current on Full Circle Weekly News. I should be getting a new file sometime today. Bill? 
Well, in the last two weeks, I've not done much except replace the power supply in my HP TP1, which is the machine that I use. Uh, it's my daily driver down here that I make the shows with. Um, I switched out the factory installed 180 watt power supply to an upgraded 400 watt replacement. This new power supply offers the added six prong wire harness uh, to power the new Radeon Pro WX7100 I purchased. The upgraded video card needs the power allowed it through the PCIe X16 port it's plugged to in addition to the ping pin plug coming directly from the power supply. This new video card is a huge improvement uh, over the uh, AMD Fire Pro W5100 I was using previously, uh, given its ability to encode X264 and HEVC, that's high efficiency video codec video, relieving that duty from the CPU, which was doing it before. This is especially useful when I'm recording the shows and doing live streaming. My CPU usage has gone down from an average about 40% on 16 threads to less than 5 uh, since installing the new Radeon Pro card, I've been introduced to the idea that the open-source Mesa driver provided by most Linux distributions doesn't get you quite 100% there in terms of capabilities. I only stumbled on this realization when I tried to use this card to play Skyrim on Steam. The game sees the card as a premium card and sets all the defaults to Ultra, which is the highest setting for graphic rendering. Um, the, uh, the card, the heat, on, uh, fan on the card winds up, it heats up to some pretty high temperatures and can barely render the game with, while using the Mesa stack. So I thought I'd go to AMD's website and see, uh, if this is one of the cards that has a proprietary driver associated with it. And of course it does. Now, interestingly, I know... I now know why we call the proprietary NVIDIA driver a binary driver, though we don't necessarily do the same for the proprietary AMD GPU Pro drivers. This is because that when you download from AMD, it's actually a script that has to be uh, that has to be executed with the next necessary flags to install and enable certain optional functionality, such as OpenCL. The script also adds a PPA to the system. Now, there's different scripts for different systems. Uh, of course, I downloaded the uh, script for uh, Ubuntu 22.04, which is what this version of Mint that I'm using is based on. Um, the script adds a PPA to the system, then installs several driver-level packages to uh, enable advanced support and professional functionality. I found the documentation on the AMD website to be straightforward for the type of person who would use this card, um, the type, the personality type, the type of user that would get this card would probably be comfortable with uh, executing a script over the command line, which is kind of what you need to do. Um, and I got everything up and running without any problems. I ran GLX gears while using the Mesa stack and got the, sand, the standard 60 frames per second, which matches it to the refresh rate of my monitor. After installing AMD GPU drivers, uh, GPU Pro that is, GLX gear 
reports a mind-numbing 14,000 frames per second. Uh, after some light searching, I see that there's also an AMD GPU Pro driver for the Fire Pro Debian 5100 I replaced with this new card, which begs the question as to whether or not I was even getting close to the capability of the old card, uh, well, that it was capable of doing. So that, that'll be interesting to see how that goes. I'd like to rave on for a few minutes about a project many of us have no doubt heard of, though perhaps haven't taken the time to try. Or if you did, maybe in the past you didn't have the best of luck with it. Uh, Ventoy is an open source project that allows an easy method of having many different bootable IS ISOs on a USB stick and an interface similar to a grub screen to choose which one you want to boot from. It's dead simple to set up and so simple to add ISOs to the drive. I was sure I was doing it wrong. That's how simple it was, which I wasn't. Ventoy is an excellent tool for the inveterate distro hopper. And the reason I say that is because if you're, if you're wanting to try a bunch of distros and you're not wanting to do a hard install on your system, this is a fantastic way because you're only really limited by the size of the, of your thumb drive or whatever you decide to put it on. Um, Right. I, I used to carry around a box full of uh, USB sticks, one with each distro on it, and I don't have to do that anymore. Mm. And that's the fantastic thing about Ventoy. Another arguably more interesting feature of Ventoy is that when, uh, that when enabled, uh, the boot process will skip the checking for the TPM 2.0 module as well as the requirement for signing up for an online account when you install Windows 11, which, as most people would know, that, that is the arbitrary limitations. Well, the two arbitrary limitations put in place when you're installing Windows 11 just straight off the ISO. Um, Ventoy gives you the option to skip over those, and then you can, put, you can put Windows 11 on any machine that's capable of running the software, and that is fantastic. Um, I decided to put this functionality to the test while setting up a friend's HP Compact Elite 8300, which I would assume, without any real re research, is not uh, properly supported by Windows 11 um, due to all those arbitrary requirements that Microsoft puts on it. Ventoy installed Windows 11 Pro brilliantly on the machine, and it runs perfectly acceptable. The uh, machine receives updates and is even showing up as activated, which I found that to be interesting um, and surprising because I don't remember what operating system this thing shipped with. At best, it had Windows 8 on it, but it, it looks around about the time Windows 7 was out. But again, I don't know. Um, uh, so if anybody needs to... Uh, install Windows 11 on a machine and you want to get past all of that silly limitation that Microsoft puts on it, then just throw that ISO, which you can download directly from Microsoft. You can get a proper ISO, throw it on this Ventoy and install it. And it even, I mean, you've got the option of disabling the requirement for the online account too. So if you're trying to set up a machine that you don't want to give access to the internet to, you can use Ventoy to skip over that limitation, which I, I think is really cool. 
because sometimes you just need Windows to run that odd little thing that you can't get working on Linux so well. And this this gives you that option back, which as time goes on is going to be more and more port, uh, important because in 2025, I think Windows 10 is going out of support and there's going to be a lot of very capable machines that are not getting security updates simply because of these fake limitations that Windows puts on to uh, have the TPM module and the online account. So, yeah, go check that out, folks. Well, I've also heard a lot of buzz about them uh, turning their operating system into a service that you pay for monthly. So, uh, Well, when that happens... It won't affect me any. Nah, I'll make it not. I mean, I've got two uses for Windows at this point. And that's just because I've got one of those Logitech Harmony remotes that they could just as easily let it use web-type stuff to interface with it and set it up and, and enable these things. And But they make you download their stupid little piece of software. And then there's also my Garmin GPS for, that I use in my truck. Same thing. They could run all yeah. that through a, a web service, but they make you download their stupid software which doesn't run in mine. I I use it for gaming, but I could move away from that not right now as it is, but there are also some like devices that I use either headphones, keyboards, things like that that um you can only uh access the software to to reprogram them or update them from a Windows machine because nobody's bothered to to do the work to make it run on Linux. So, yeah. Yeah, Windows isn't going anywhere, so any little trick that we can come up with to get access to it without jumping through too many hoops or, God help us, buying more hardware, you know. But then, anyway, that's all I've got. And that does it for our bi-weekly wanderings. Let's move on to Linux innards. Linux innards, uh, snap, what, who, huh? Before we jump into this, I just want to say, um, this was a very much last minute change that we all put together. Um, and nothing against Eric. Eric is having some medical issues and he's in the hospital right now. So lots of love to him, but, uh, he he was going to be the main focus of, um, our previously planned innards. So we had to make a change on Friday for today, which left us not a lot of time to write this all and get this together. So we didn't thank have you, to Moss, tell for your that. help on this. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, we didn't but, have to tell them that. Our, our innards are frequently thrown together at the last minute. Well, yeah. <laughs> all right, Moss. All right. Snap App Image and Flatpak. We wanted to talk about three of the more popular containerized application formats for Linux and provide a bit of comparison for them and discuss what we use and why. First, in general, why you might want to use containerized packages over distro-native packaging formats. Portability. Containerized applications should be able to run wherever you take them as they should have all their libraries bundled together. Improved security. Containerized applications can be run in isolation from everything else and so are protected and can be isolated from the rest of your system, which protects your system called sandboxing. Potentially faster startup times can also be easier to manage. 
So as a bit of a summary, containerized application packaging formats pack the dependencies in the same package as the application, which eliminates conflicts between packages, but this full packaging of application and dependencies does come at the cost of using more space. All three support sandboxing, but it is mandatory for Flatpak. All have native theme support and bundled libraries, while Flatpak and AppImage are fully portable. All three also have an app store, and you can have multiple versions installed. All of them can do automatic updates, through app though AppImage takes a bit more work, and a lot of times you just end up downloading the new version and deleting the old one. Snaps has the most amount of applications available thanks to Ubuntu Canonical, and Flatpak has the least. A little bit of history, and I just mean a little bit. AppImage from Wikipedia, AppImage's predecessor Click was designed in 2004, and my screen just changed. There we go. Try again. AppImage's predecessor Click was designed in 2004 by Simon Peter. The client-side software is GPL licensed. Click integrated with web browsers on the user's computer. Users downloaded and installed software by typing a URL beginning with click colon slash slash. This downloaded a click recipe file, which was used to generate a CMG file. For main ingredients, usually pre-built deb packages from Debian stable repositories were fed into the recipes.cmg generation process. In this way, one recipe could be used to supply packages to a wide variety of platforms. With Click, only eight programs could be run at once because of the limitation of mounting compressed images within the Linux kernel unless Fuse was used. The title was remounted each time the program is run, meaning the user could remove the program by simply deleting the .cmg file. A next version, Click 2, was in development and would natively incorporate the Fuse kernel module, but it never reached past the beta stage. Around 2011, the Click project went dormant and the homepage went offline for some time. Simon Peter started a successor project named Portable Linux Apps with similar goals around that time. The technology was adapted, for instance, by the PortableLinuxGames.org repository, providing hundreds of mostly open-source video games. Around 2013, the software was renamed again from Portable Linux Apps to AppImage. The license became the MIT license. AppImage is the format, and AppImage Kit is a concrete open-source implementation. The development happens in a GitHub repository. Bill, you don't have anything to read here. Take Flatpak, please. Just I caught a second. Off guard. Well, I was putting okay. our notes on the website, so they are up now. Flatpak, and this is from Gnome History. The initial release of Glick, Alexander Larson, yeah, Larson's first application bundling project, was in August 2007. Glick 2 waited until November 2011, then in July 2012, Gnome, Gnome OS session was held at Guadec, a high-level discussion of Gnome application developer experience. One outcome was a commitment to plan a new application bundling format. Alex then released an experimental bundler framework in September 2012. In January 2013, planning meetings at Gnome Developer Experience Hackfest, Brussels, which featured a discussion of Linux apps, proposal in attendance, Colin Walters, Leonard Pottering, Greg Croa-Hartman, I've only known him as Greg K.H., and more work has begun on XDG app in December 2014. And the first commit was on 2014, uh, 
well, December 17th of 2014. The initial XDG app release was September 2015, followed in March 2016 by the first major XDG app release. With this release, a full set of tooling and runtimes was made available for the first time. In June 2016, XDG app was renamed to Flatpak, and Flatpak.org was launched. Accompanying press release includes endorsements by Red Hat, Endless Computers, and Calabra. In August 2016, Endless OS 3.0 released the first publicly available OS to use Flatpak by default, and adoption of Flatpak by Apertus IVI became public knowledge. I'm sure I screwed that up. In October 2016, Flatpak 0.6.13 released. This release introduced major command line improvements, automatic checking, and installation for runtimes and capabilities that allow applications that cannot be freely distributed, like Spotify and Skype, to use Flatpak. In December 2016, Flatpak 0.8.0 was released. This is the beginning of the first stable release series. In March 2017, at the GTK Plus Hackfest in London, Flatpak plans are made and the idea of Flathub was discussed. By July 2017, Flathub was up and running. In October 2017, Flatpak 0.10.0 released. This started the second stable release series, considered LTS. Then in August 2018, Flatpak 1.0.0 was released. And, yeah. I said brief history. That's as brief as you get. (laughs) Yep. I'll do this one. Snap from Linux TLDR and Wikipedia. Canonical, the daddy of Ubuntu, introduced the Snap package management system in 2016 to revolutionize Linux software distribution. Addressing issues like dependency management, version conflict, and security, ultimately enhancing the user experience and simplifying package development for developers. Snap initially only supported the all-Snap Ubuntu core distribution, but in June 2016 it was ported to a wide range of Linux distributions to become a format for universal Linux packages. Snap requires SystemD, which is available in most but not all Linux distributions. Other Unix-like systems, e.g. FreeBSD, are not supported. Chrome OS does not support Snap directly, only through Linux distributions installed in it that support Snap, such as Gallium OS. Ubuntu and its official derivatives pre-install Snap by default, as well as other Ubuntu-based distributions such as KDE Neon, Solus, and Zorin OS. While other official Ubuntu derivatives such as Kubuntu, Xubuntu, and Ubuntu Mate have also shipped with the competing Flatpak as a complement, Canonical will prohibit uh, Canonical will prohibit them from doing so, beginning with Ubuntu 23.04, meaning that it must be installed manually by the user. Okay, um, now for a bit of a breakdown. Uh, for Snaps, you know, one thing interesting about Snap applications is that they are all listed in the Snap Store and are the default on OSs like Ubuntu, which does mean that there's more of them, and generally there's more support for them. Um, installing them from command line is also extremely similar to how devs are installed from the repo. 
Now, Flatpak is built to be portable and to make it easy to distribute applications. And the command line, once again, offers the exact same functionality as DEBs or RPMs. Something interesting about Flatpak is that every application is built against a runtime that provides the basic dependencies for applications, but um, it can have more uh, libraries and dependencies bundled with the application. So if it's anything beyond what is considered to be common in the runtime. Um, <clears throat> so those common libraries are shared amongst them, which does help reduce the overall size of individual flat packs. Not the first flat pack you download, but uh, each of the subsequent ones um, if there's anything shared, it won't pull that. Now, app image is a little different in that there really is no need to do anything from the command line. You're never going to do anything from the command line with app image unless it's uh, to kick off the application. Now, you get the application executable and you check and make sure that the flags are set so that it is executable. After that, it works similar to a .exe file in Windows, and everything that the application needs is bundled into that one file. Um, I think that makes it great for having your applications on a USB drive that you can take with you anywhere. Um, as long as the system is Linux, it should work. Now, application packages are always um, distributed in, in their compressed form. This is for all three of them. This helps with the internet bandwidth of distributing the application. When the application is installed on the client side, depending on the package, the package might be stored and run as compressed or decompressed. For example, the snap packages are always stored and run compressed. Similarly, the app image packages are never uncompressed on the client side. Storing and running packages compressed has the added benefit of reduce disk space usage. On the other hand, the Flatpak packages are always decompressed on the client side. This means the Flatpak packages are almost always bigger than both Snap and AppImage packages. As mentioned earlier, sandboxing is an important feature of containerized packages, both for security and stability. It means that the application can be run in isolation and malicious programs will not have an effect on your entire system. Same thing with a malfunctioning application. It means that it should have minimal impact on the rest of your system. By default, flat packs and snaps will do sandboxing out of the box. But for app image, it requires a bit more work and the installation of some kind of sandboxing software. So it does not do it out of the box. Um, you can follow this link to a blog post by Alan Pope, a former Canonical developer that will discuss it more. And that's in the show notes. Well, the reason I just literally added that to the end of the note um there, I, and we will link to this in the show notes. There's a blog post by Alan Pope um, from back in uh, September where he outlined um, some problems, in my opinion, they're problems, with the whole Snap uh, ecosystem and, and the cadence at which many of these Snaps are uh, updated. And... I thought this was interesting because in my mind, I think there's this whole user base of people that install things like uh, Ubuntu or Mint. Um, and then when they install software, they'll open the software center because that's that's the workflow that we've gotten used to with the phones. You know, that's how we get software from the Google Play and what have you. And when you install these packages, and oh, by the way, the Ubuntu distributions 
all of them are pushing the snaps as the default method of getting your package, including all the th third-party stuff. Um, the problem with this, and Alan really kind of outlined it in a huge way, is that many of these snaps um, are not getting updated. They're, they were either made by the original developer sometime back when when Canonical was doing an awful lot to push push the agenda forward for the snap package format. And then either the developer is not keeping up with the uh, maintenance or the upkeep of the package, or these packages were made by former Canonical employees who have gone on to do other things and have grace, gracefully bowed out of the process of keeping these snaps up to date, and now they've gone unchecked. Now, Canonical does a really good job with the snaps that you're kind of, I don't want to say forced to get, but you know, you, if, when you install Ubuntu, you're getting Firefox in a snap format. Now, those type things are being updated pretty well. The problem is with packages like OBS Studio, which hasn't seen an update in over a year. And it's because the person who was keeping that snap up to date is no longer, either no longer working for Canonical or not in the position to uh, keep that up to date. And I thought this was, this could be a potential problem for a lot of, all the reasons that we want to keep software up to date. Um, but for the fact that Canonical and people working for Canonical were so zealous about pushing snaps as the as the thing to come along and uh, sort of release us from the tyranny of all these different packaging formats, which in actu actuality, in my opinion, I think it's made it worse because now people have come to depend on formats that are just not keeping up with the software now for stuff for people like us where we know okay I I'm I know that OBS Studio is they they recommend the flat pack um, officially so I'm going to go and get the flat pack you know for people that are in the know it's not a problem you know it's basically how it's always been where some some projects are using certain uh, packaging formats above others but for for normal users that don't navigate all of the nuances with packages and don't really care to learn much about that, I fear that they're getting out-of-date software. And nobody, I, I, I'm also afraid that nobody's making making it clear that that might be what's happening. They're just they're presenting these packages to you in the in the uh, software store as if that is the version you should be using, and and that's it, you know. So what do you guys think about that? It's really important that that blog post is by Alan Pope, because for two years he was a canonical employee involved in pushing the concept of Snap and training different corporations that produce software how to snap their packages. And since leaving canonical, he has actually started a script uh, that is still in beta right now that will identify all the snaps on your system download and install the flat packs that are uh, the same software and then remove the snaps. And uh, 
He has gone quite a distance there. Yeah. Good for Popey. Well, then recently he's come back and said, well, you know what? I had an awful lot of snaps that I was in charge of. And he went back and looked and literally nobody has picked up the uh, picked up these packages and kept them up to date since he's been gone. This is also true of some other developers, um, former canonical developers. And so he's been efforting, trying to get back into the swing of keeping these snaps up to date, you know, and, and yeah, that's great. I'm happy about that. I'm glad, but I still wonder you, I still wonder how many packages are just going to get left behind while simultaneously we live in this space where this format is being, is being pushed as the best uh, format to, release and maintain your software in and it and it really kind of worries me a little bit but i might maybe i'm completely off base maybe this user base that exists in my mind that is not as technical well they're about as tech savvy as they need to be to get the thing up and running and then get the software that they run going but they don't they're not the type of people to go installing a bunch of packages and that and but I feel like that user base does exist, and we're going to run into security problems as a result of that. Eventually. But... Or compatibility issues later on. Yeah. But, no, do you guys use snaps? The, well, our servers have snaps on them, like the, the live patch. It's it's just mostly snaps that are directly um, developed and maintained by Canonical themselves. No third party or anything. But I mean that's on the servers as well as the uh, desktop. That's that's being pushed as a way to get software. I only use Debs and Flatpaks myself. Flatpak seems to have seems to have gone the more distribution agnostic route, and it feels like it's getting better attention because it's outside of the privy of one of one uh, uh, company, but. You still, I think Flatpak could potentially suffer the same shortcomings that Snaps can, where, you know, you had somebody that was zealous about it and they were keeping it up to date and everything, and then all of a sudden they, they bow out. Well, you've still got people using this software. Um, and Yeah, but you can run across that with a deb, too. You could. Yeah, so I don't know. Am I... Am I out of touch with this or or is this a potential problem now and in the future with well these? every time they come up with a new system it's supposed to replace all the other systems and it doesn't it just adds another new system that's exactly right. what's happened too i think instead of like releasing us from this problem that we had where we it was a tough sell to get a company well, I'll use Adobe for an example. It, it'd be a tough sell because they would have to provide either provide source code, which they're not going to do, or provide binaries. But if they provide binaries, they've got to they've got to go make debs. They've got to go make um, RPMs, um, which you know just just doing those two alone is a huge undertaking for uh, presumably a very small user base. Well, Snaps comes along. Well, no, we got Snaps now, and now you can just make the Snap and make that available to anybody. And it just hasn't brought in the AAA title gold standard software that people were hoping it would, like your Adobe Creative 
sweet and I don't know, pro tools or not pro tools. Yeah. But well, s- stuff like that. Well, flat pack could be more user friendly, but uh you, you use it for a little bit, you get the hang of it. I one thing I wish flat pack would do is make it more clear who is actually uh maintaining the flat pack itself. Uh They'll tell you who the developer of the software is on the website, but it feels like a lot of jumping through hoops um, to find who is actually maintaining the flat pack, which in many cases, maybe even most cases, is not the upstream developer themselves. It's somebody in the community. Um, and I don't feel like Flat Hub does quite a good enough job in making that clear to people. But that, again, that might just be me. Is that about all we have to say? Well, no. Um, do you guys, so like me, I love app images. Um, now, there aren't a lot of applications that I use with app images, but I still think that they're a great thing for me to be able to um, just grab the image and even put it on a USB stick and be able to take it amongst my various laptops and computers so that I, you know, I don't have to install it on any, everything. And then, you know, some of my applications, they're not in um, a snap or a flat pack. And the obvious example would be uh, Cura, which I use for slicing 3D files for my 3D printer. So, yeah, <clears throat> um, I, I do think that, you know, that is like a really great thing to be able to just grab those images, put them on a USB stick and take them everywhere and have them just work. And that's because everything is all bundled together and it acts like an executable. Well, it um, would be if it worked, but about three out of four app images I've tried haven't just worked. Really? On, and uh, is it, you think the other thing is they, they don't automatically add it to the menu so you can't find it to use it. You actually and, have to do some dancing to get added yeah. to the menu. Whereas with flat packs and snaps, it's automatically there. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing with app images. You're not installing anything. You're just basically running it. That app image itself is the container in which it's running from. And you you also have to make sure you've got Fuse 2 installed, which isn't always. And I had to find that out the hard way when I was trying to make it work on Arch. You can, the system is quite happy to make the file executable, but then it goes nowhere because it's looking for Fuse 2. Um, and I think Fuse 3 by de- is by default the installed version of that. So that's one thing you have to keep in mind with. And then the fact that you got to jump through the hoops to add the, the uh, menu entry and set an icon for it and all that stuff, you know. But there are there is software out there that recommends app image by default audacity being one of them uh their instructions tell you to either use the distribution version or the uh, app image they don't say anything on their own website about the flat pack uh which i mean that's that's right. another thing it, you know you you look at the flat hub entry for audacity and it looks like an official thing but it's actually a, a community ran effort to uh, make yeah, that available. NixOS doesn't even have a repo. They tell you to use app images. Yeah. So, I mean, the, I think the moral of the story is there's there's advantages to all these packaging formats, 
and there's some pretty serious disadvantages, and you have to keep that in mind when you're deciding how you're going to install software. And it still seems, in spite of the fact that we've got these universal formats, we are still at a place where some software is just better to install this way, and other software is better to install the other way. You know, and I don't, I just don't see that going away. Okay, that about wraps it up for our innards this this episode. Um, let's move on to vibrations from the ether. Well, we've got one email in vibrations, and it was sent directly to me. I thought it would be sent to everyone, but... Um, it wasn't. It's from someone uh, whose email is Bunabadili. He says, hello, I listen to Mintcast. Having social media accounts may boost your blog beyond podcast listeners. Examples of sites to post on are X, Facebook, Mastodon, Instagram, Pinterest, Telegram, Reddit, and Locals. I did respond to him myself. I said, I do not do decimation, dissemination of Mintcast, but I know it goes out to several of the social media pages you mentioned. I do disseminate Distro Hoppers Digest and Full Circle Weekly News to Mastodon in addition to several Telegram and Discord groups. I refuse to patronize social media which does not respect its users, chief among which are X, Facebook, and other major companies who make money by selling user data. I have no opinion and no access to Reddit. Thanks for your input. Anyone else got something to say? Yeah, we do have a Facebook page, and I know... Um, we probably haven't been updating it as much as we should. Um, that, that's on me and that's on, I think, I think Bill, did I, did I give you admin access on the Facebook? I think you've said it about a dozen times. I'm not, I don't remember. Maybe you did. Uh, I've just not done anything with it. Honestly. Well, I know I had admin access and I know Tony had admin access. If that tells you how long it's been since we've actually done anything with our, our, our Facebook page. But, uh, yeah, um, and Reddit got too polarizing there for a while. Same, same with X where I'm not going to do anything on X. So, well, the thing that's a little frustrating about this is this person obviously never went to our website because there are links on mintcast.org to our Twitter account, which is now X, uh, to our Facebook account, our Mastodon account. We also have Telegram and Reddit. We have most of these things that this person outlined here. So I wonder but we if... we love our listeners and we are not shaming him on the air. I'm, I'm not, <laughs> but I, I invite people, you know, this person, I'm not, I don't want to shame you, but you, you, you evidently didn't go and look because we are, we have a very vibrant uh, Discord channel. Um we we do have uh, a Telegram instance where the shows are announced in both of these. And it goes through cycles on the Telegram on how active it is. Because sometimes it's just I'm um, receiving pings from that all day long. And then sometimes it's yeah. two or three days without anything. Right. So mintcast.org, um, down about halfway down the page, you'll see all of the links. Uh, Pinterest, I'm, okay. I'm not sure Pinterest is appropriate for what we do what do you think moss well we do what we can do and we leave it at that yeah and we all have our reasons for doing what we do and not doing what we don't do 
Uh, if somebody wants to come on and be our, our social media manager, oh, then um, <laughs> we will gladly take your free work all day long. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that about does it for vibrations from the ether. Let's move on to check this out. And in check this out, we've got a couple of items. Uh, who posted those? Oh, I'll take talk that about first it? one there. Okay. Now, I saw this um, interesting um, YouTube video. Uh, Raspberry Pis are for pay pigs. Buy a $9 uh, Chromebook instead. Now, despite the name, you know, but um, or the, the way that the video is named, it actually turned out to be a, an okay video. Production quality wasn't that great. But the topic was good. He was talking about buying Chromebooks and using them as replacements for uh, Raspberry Pis. Now, I thought that was a good topic considering some of what we had discussed earlier with the prices of Pis. Um, so he is buying them in bulk. And that's how he's getting down to that $9 price tag. But if you go on eBay or wherever, Facebook Marketplace, I was seeing them between $15 and $30. But you do have to do your your research on the Chromebooks you're buying to make sure that um, it, it's ticking the marks, whether that's expandable memory or, and this is an important one, actually able to install Linux. But even if it has a broken screen, that doesn't matter. You can still use it in much the same way you would a, a Raspberry Pi. You just have to go in there and, and get it set up the correct way. So it's a decent video. The idea behind it is great. Check it out if you get the chance. Or you could go on eBay and look at x86 computers, such as the ThinkCenter Tiny that I use so much around here. I found Think Center Tinies with i3s as cheap as 50 bucks and with i7s uh, up closer to 200 and everything in the middle there for i5s. My last two i5s were around 99 bucks. Well, the last one was 100 and 119, but the one before that was 99. I've always considered a lot of these Chromebooks as e-waste. So yeah. th this is another good thing. If I mean, if you can get them between nine and 15 bucks, then why not give it a try and keep them out of a junkyard? Really? And Ventoy, is that you, Bill? By golly, it is. I, you know, I, I talked about Ventoy. There's not much more to say about it, but I did put a link here in the show notes to the uh, Ventoy website. I'll go over real quick how how you get this up and running. Um, so you'll download the uh, the Ventoy. Um, it's either a Linux.tar.gz or you can get uh, a live CD ISO. Um, but if you download the uh, tar and expand it out, you've got a install script that you would just run from the terminal, which you know some people might be more comfortable with that than others. But basically, what this install, what this installer does, and it is graphical, but you do have to execute it from the command line, or maybe you don't. Maybe if you you uh, mark it, there executable. is a web installer for it. Okay. You can go on the web and, and just run it off your browser. And if if and when you do, it will just ask which drive. You'll have your stick already plugged in. It'll ask you which drive you want to use. And then it'll go ahead and provision that drive and set it up. And, I mean, it is, it is instant. Uh, and at that point, you literally just drop the ISOs onto the 
USB drive, and there's that's it. it. It's as easy as drag and drop, but you do have to wait a long time while it sets those up to run. Uh, it sometimes takes a very long time to get that stick finished copying it into a Ventoy format. I have not, I've not noticed that. It seemed to be just a matter of drag and drop it, the ISO, into the, the directory that they go in. and the, you, Just watch how long that drive blinks. And if you try to eject it, it'll say, I'm still writing to this device. And it'll stay there for as long as it takes. Well, I, I suppose it also probably depends on the speed of the drive that you're dealing with. I was using very, very fast Samsung thumb drives, uh, which mm-hmm. are comparable in speed to an ssd actually um but at any rate it once you have that then you boot from that usb stick and you're given basically what looks like a grub screen or it looks a little bit more akin to the old sys linux that we used to use in the 32-bit days um that what just kind of lists all the ISOs there and you scroll down, you pick one and the whole, all that stuff I was talking about with windows 11, skipping over all that, all those arbitrary limitations. I think all that stuff, at least in my case, it was all enabled by default. So even if you didn't, if you accidentally just started it up without messing with that, then you still get that functionality. So in my opinion, the only way to install windows, but uh, yeah, go check that out. Okay, that's about it for Check This Out. Uh, Let's move on to housekeeping and announcements. Thank you for listening to this episode of MintCast. If you see something you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the MintCast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram and Discord or post directly at https colon slash slash mintcast.org. Our next episode will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Sunday, November 12th, 2023. We have a link in the show notes to convert that to your local time zone. Our next roundtable live stream is 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Saturday, November 4th, 2023. We have a link to get that converted to your local time zone. Live stream information is at mintcast.org slash livestream. So wrapping up, where can we see more of you, Joe? Well, you can hear me more on a couple of my other podcasts, the Linux Link Tech Show, tllts.org. You can see me on the Linux Lugcast, linuxlugcast.com. You can send me an email directly, jb at mintcast.org. I do try to respond to all emails, or you can buy me a coffee on Kofi. Boss? Well, I do Full Circle Weekly News every week, Distro Hoppers Digest about every five weeks, uh, you can email me at bardmoss at pm.me. My mastodon is at zyvala at hosttux.social, and my other contact information can be found at itsmoss.com. Bill? Uh, you can email me, bill, at mincast.org. I'm bill underscore h on Discord, at wchauser3 at fostodon.org on the mastodon. Also, check out my other two podcasts, Linux OTC and Three Fat Truckers. Links to both of those in the show notes. Okay, um, Majid was unable to be with us today. You can find him at drmajid at minkcast.org, at atypicaldoctor on Twitter, atypicalanesthetist on Instagram, and the Atypical Anesthetist podcast on Spotify. Eric also was unable to make it here today. Um, you can hear and see him 
on this and the Linux OTC podcast, as well as the Linux Saloon and Linux Lugcast streams. If you'd like to get in touch with him, he can be reached via email at eric at mintcast.org. Discord, Eric underscore Adams, Telegram, um, that's in the show notes. Matrix is also in the show notes, Mastodon, and all those links are in the show notes. Okay, before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Uh, probably Bill for our audio editing, archive.org for hosting our audio files, Hobstar for our logo, InitRD for the animated Discord logo, Londoner for our time sinks and various other contributions, Bill Hauser for hosting the server which runs our website, website maintenance, and the next cloud server on which we host our show notes and raw audio. And the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. And Co. It's a wrap. Woohoo! This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mint.